Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You know, that song is 50 years old right now. It was released in June of 1971, and its peak of popularity was right now, 50 years ago. Which is remarkable in a number of ways, including the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, nobody has written a better song. Nobody has written and recorded a better song about our environmental crises, nor have those crises abated in any significant way. If anything, we're in worse shape than ever. Um, And I, I don't want to lean too much on this, but the fact that nobody's written even close to as good a song as this in 50 years about this problem. Maybe a tiny, tiny bit of a signal of our inaction. I mean, there are much bigger signals, of course. We'll talk about those today. And I want to say that it would be easy and probably appropriate to do a show that was, you know, kind of doom-scrolling on the radio about the subject of climate change. The report that we got earlier this month from the UN panel Uh, the first of its kind in eight years, was uh, about as dark and gloomy uh, as it could be um, and was uh, a warning that even some of our best efforts may not do much more than slightly slow down this terrifying process. Um, However, I also don't think we function very well under those terms. So uh, in talking about this with producer Lily Tyson, I said, you know, we've got to tell people something that they can do. I mean, there are things that really can only be fixed institutionally. Uh, Nations have to change. Uh, Multinational corporations have to change. Uh, International monitoring has to change. And the average person cannot affect that kind of stuff all that materially. But there are things, you know. There are things worth talking about and thinking about. And I don't think we're going to be very good at doing what we have to do here if we don't feel some kind of sense of empowerment to to address these problems through action of our own own or actions that we support. Uh, And we'll talk about all those kinds of things. We're just going to throw a bunch of ideas at you. But we do need to set the stage. I'm guessing you know pretty well what the sense of the overall tone of the United Nations Intergovernmental Planet on Climate Change Report was. Uh, it was the uh, was essentially updating uh, a, a report or or the latest report in a series that uh, included one eight years ago. Uh, but here to remind us a little bit uh, of what we heard uh, is Rebecca Lieber. Uh, she is a writer for Vox. She reports on climate for Vox. Rebecca Lieber, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. 
So you could do a much better job than I can in my fumbling way. Uh, but, I mean, basically this report said, look, even if you do a lot of the things that you really should do, you're, you're, you're certainly – you can't turn it back and, and the, you probably also can't full out stop it. So, so what were we told? Um, yeah, I think you did a great job setting this up, but um, basically we, uh, surprise, are not slowing down global warming. Um, the world has warmed about a little over one degree Celsius since pre-industrial times. And to remind you of the target that world leaders set in uh, Paris um, about five years ago was a 1.5 degree target. So we are barreling towards a world that is completely changed. Um, so there's there's not much room here for wishful thinking. That was clear in this IPCC report um, that we 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 shouldn't hope for the best here. That we need drastic action. Um, and I, I would correct one thing. I don't think the world is giving its best effort oh, no. in tackling this crisis. No. Um, we uh, have continued more with the same inertia of building out fossil fuel infrastructure. So um, that's one reason we see emissions continue to climb. So we are not taking the drastic action that scientists say are needed. Right. I mean, not only are we not taking the drastic action, we're not even doing the monitoring that would be helpful to know how non-drastic our action is. I mean, in other words, I think it was your article that pointed out in the area of methane, the world still doesn't monitor the oil and gas industry closely enough to, for example, plug up the leakiest oil and gas facilities. Right. One of the interesting developments that is in this latest report is looking at other greenhouse gas pollutants. So that uh, means pollutants like methane. Um, normally we talk about carbon dioxide, but here methane is a very potent uh, climate warmer. And we um, it comes from a range of sources, from oil, oil and gas fields to agriculture, to even wetlands. And human activity has uh, led methane to be at its highest levels in 800,000 years. So one of the things we can do here is take immediate action on methane, specifically methane leaks from oil and gas. This is something that um, lots of experts think is within our power to get a handle on in the next decade, and it would have a measurable impact on warming. So we should say that the um, uh, the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, the IPCC, the IPCC report, I mean, it, it really is a kind of a measurement of the problem as opposed to a prescription for what we need to do, and and you use the you just use the term we too about about you know what we we could do to deal with that. And I guess that's sort of the next question that I have is, who is we? Who is going to? I mean, who who are the likely sources of meaningful collective action on this? It's a great question. Um, I guess uh, yeah, we is not super clear. I think when you look at who bears responsibility for climate change, it is rich industrialized countries, um, specifically the U.S., that bears the most responsibility for causing this crisis. So while um, other countries are a huge factors, so China and India are top polluters now, um, the U.S. has a lot of um, accountability here to help, help other countries transition to a world that's changed by climate change and also both cut its footprint and help other countries cut its footprint. 
So I guess starting there that it's industrialized countries that bear the most responsibility here, that's um, sadly where we see the most inaction that the US has been really stuck in this polarized landscape where um, it really lags behind politically and policy-wise when you look at other parts of the world, specifically Europe has taken a lead in taking action on climate pollutants. The U.S. still lags behind considerably. I mean, you could sort of see some slight political cultural transformation, even in the last election cycle. Both Sanders and Biden, you know, really spoke forcefully about climate. I mean, I think there's sort of been a sense in preceding cycles that he or she who overpromises on climate change and change and over cautions on climate change is essentially telling a bunch of enthusiastic, delighted gluttons that they're going to have to go on a very strict diet. And that's not how you win votes, right? Uh, the, The American people are not terribly grown up about this stuff. They don't want to be told that the party they've been having has to be over and has to be replaced by something else. But it did seem this time around that this thing could be brought up without a tremendous political price attached to it. Um, Right. I think um, this kind of debate over whether acting on climate change significantly changes um, people's lives. The fact is climate change will change lives. We're seeing this play out with disasters across the country. So it's not something we can just ignore and carry on with the party because people are suffering um, in this country and around the world from those effects. But also, um, I think the shift we saw this election cycle, particularly from Democrats, was pitching climate change as an opportunity, something that if we take action early enough, we can create jobs. This actually could be a boon for the economy. There are other effects um, from tackling climate pollutants that include reducing air pollution, which causes um, lots of illness and premature death. So there there is this package of benefits we actually get from taking action here. And I think um, this election cycle saw Democrats really capitalize on that messaging. And you really see this come through with Biden and how he talks about his infrastructure plan and kind of adopting some of the language we saw from Green New Deal advocates. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I mean, this has been around for a long time, and, and the Green New Deal was the sort of crystallization of it, the really attempt to put, kind of put it in uh, a package of politi- politically understanding vocabulary, understandable vocabulary. But the truth is, the United States has lost economic opportunities around the world by not, for example, being able to build to some of the stricter standards that do exist in, in other countries. And, and there is, you just look around, and you know, if you want to stimulate the economy, you want to create more jobs and more economic activity. Boy, there's just a tremendous... I keep looking at... I have this... I I wasn't even going to mention this. I think about this all the time, though. So the island of Vieques is part of Puerto Rico. And during Maria, the island of Vieques lost power. And I don't know if they've even gotten it back yet. Uh, They were on generators for years, you know. And the island of Vieques has this huge tract of unused land and probably mostly kind of unusable land. There was the old Navy base there. That's the reason there was used for, you know, various kinds of shelling drills and stuff like that. It made the whole terrain very dangerous for a number of years. And I'm down in Vieques occasionally. When I look at it, I think that's a solar field. You know, you could just you could put up an incredible solar. They get a lot of sun in Puerto Rico. <laughs> you could put up a solar field there and, and electrify the entire island and probably have power you could sell back to the mainland. And, you know, I mean, it just it feels like we don't maybe 
Rebecca, we're starting to see those kinds of things as not only projects that would be good for the world and good for us, but maybe where somebody can make a little bit of money. That seems to be a big incentive for Americans. Right. Climate change isn't this niche subject. Basically, we can solve our other issues or or at least take some action to address inequality, poverty, uh, suffering by also taking action on climate change. So um, I think all of these issues are certainly related. Now, from those of us who do care, there is kind of a um, a phenomenon or a syndrome, and I, I'm guilty of it too, that we might call the Doug Forsett syndrome. Now, in the uh, series The Good Place, which is all about the afterlife, uh, they talk about this person on earth, Doug Forsett, who tried to live the most moral life, the kind of life where he would acquire and accumulate the most points that would help him have a desirable after, uh, afterlife. Uh, and so he, one of the things he does try to do is to have the absolute lightest environmental footprint that he can. Let's hear uh, Michael McKean playing Doug Forsett and talking to Ted Danson as uh, the, uh, an angel named Michael. Here we go to the waters. Let me know if you're not happy with them. I have ice cubes if it's too warm and a koozie if it's too cold. <laughs> oh, well, that has a interesting aftertaste. Is that from a nearby river? Oh, no. Why take fresh water away from the beavers and the fish? Uh, no, I have my composting toilet hooked up to a water filtration system. One man's waste is another man's water. Mm. And both men are me. <laughs> At which point the other the two angels spit out the water they've been drinking. But, you know, I mean, I think we're, we all have a little bit of Doug Forsett in us, you know, or th- those of us who care. And, and I think we think, well, if we go to farmer's markets and, and maybe buy an electric car or something like that, you know, we, we can make a difference. And, and I think the point of this show episode is you should, you should try to make a difference and probably try to make a difference in other ways. But there's also a way we have to accept the fact that even being very, very strict with ourselves is probably not going to be a big enough fix. Yeah, um, I love The Good Place. And I guess if I'm getting my my morals from The Good Place, it's not just your individual world that is what matters. And certainly when we're talking about something as complex as climate, um, we're talking about institutions, we're talking about the entire economy. So what I encourage people to do here is, yes, you can take action in your personal life, like eating less meat, like driving less, like going in the farmer's market. But what I'd encourage people to do is look at how fossil fuels are part of their larger um, lives and society. And you can take action. Um, There's a lot of things you can do at a community level to push for better climate solutions. So that might include electrifying school buses so they um, produce less pollution or electrifying um, buildings and, and, and having stronger building codes that are for a cleaner climate. Um, They could be looking at local uh, fossil fuel projects planned But beyond that, you can also get involved on a federal level. Right now, the Senate, um, sorry, Congress is considering a clean electricity standard that would move um, the electricity sector to a cleaner um, um, sources. So um, there are ways to get involved and to have your opinion be heard by um, local representatives here. And um, it's there's basically a lot that I think um, to do here that is thinking beyond your your own um, house and your own <laughs> um, personal action. And I think when when you hear from environmental journalists and experts saying individual action um, is not where to start, I think that's what what 
people really mean, um, that we need to think more communally and as a society how to have this, this major shift in our fossil fuel-based economy. And some of that also does involve, I think, creating different social norms, too. Like right now, a cool thing to be able to do is to, I mean, setting the pandemic aside for a moment, a cool thing to be able to do is to fly to London and go and have a good time. Uh, now, one assessment of the environmental impact of a round-trip flight from London to New York is equivalent to 10,000 plastic water bottles. I mean, air travel is, in fact, you know, I mean, a huge consuming uh, and carbon-emitting uh, activity. And, and maybe ultimately we have to think a little bit more about, you know, w- what we should value. Uh, and if one person changes, it doesn't make that big a difference. But if we change that value set, uh, it, it can change as well. Uh, well, listen, we're going to talk about some other things as we go along, but we are uh, very grateful to have had Rebecca Lieber here to sh- set the stage for us, climate reporter for Vox. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And we'll take a break. We'll start telling you about some things people are trying or considering. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Hear the drums resounding throughout the countryside. Call for action, a cry for change, all anger cast aside. We are thunder, we are lightning. Together we can spark a change, steadfast as mountains. Together we can make a change, together we will make a change. That's Thomasina Levy. I sing on that cut. I mean, <laughs> it's a strange thing to say if you're a radio host, but I was at the sessions, I sang on that. Anyway, uh, so can we make a change? And, and what kinds of changes should we make here in the face uh, of such danger? Uh, here in this segment, we're going to talk about two ideas. One of them is a little bit more directed at um, somehow or other drawing down the current amount of carbon we're putting up into the air. Uh, And then the second thing we're going to talk about is a little bit more directed at mitigating some of the problems we've already caused. 
using the humble oyster. Uh, but right now we're kind of talking to David Brukovici, uh, the co-director of the Yale Center for Natural Carbon Capture and a professor uh, in Yale's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it's sort of intuitive, right? I mean, if you told a kid about this problem, the kid would say, well, is there some way we could get some uh, of the CO2 that's already in the air out of the air and, and put it someplace else where it wouldn't be causing so much trouble for us? Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like something a kid would say, but it's also something that's actually being attempted here. Uh, and, and it's being attempted in a number of different ways. Uh, if you want, you can sort of start out with your uh, main area of expertise, enhanced silicate weathering, I think it's cause, called. But I think, but I also hope we can talk about direct air capture, too. Sure. I mean, in a way, um, even some of the things that we're looking at with silicate weathering is direct air capture. But I mean, I guess I should iterate that... Um, you know, a lot of people think of natural carbon capture. They're probably the majority of people will think in terms of forests and soils and agriculture, which is a big part of our, you know, remit um, also within the center is to try to explore that with a lot of the colleagues in the School of the Environment. We have a lot of the world's experts in forests and ecosystems there. And that's a really important, it's kind of like a low hanging fruit in a way because Drawing down CO2 by photosynthesis is, you know, what, what nature does. I mean, that part of nature, the ecosystem does anyway. And it's probably the fastest and one of the largest uh, fluxes, or that is drawing down CO2 through forests and soils. Uh, but it also gives it back at about the same rate. Um, you know, it's about 100 gigatons a year, just to give you some idea of, of the net drawdown, but it gives back about 100 gigatons. And just to give you an idea of what we're shooting for, um, you mentioned the airline industry previously. I mean, that's about a gigaton a year net. What we'd like to draw down is about 10 gigatons or tens of gigatons a year to actually have a global impact. I'm just giving you rough, you know, orders of 10 numbers. So if you can cheat the forest just to pull off an extra one or two gigatons, uh, that's great. But, you know, it's not always that easy because in a way the forests and the, and the ecosystem is a little saturated. Um, so again, it's a it's a it's a low hanging fruit because they're it's very effective, but you know you can see with the forest fires that are occurring in the Northwest and in Canada, you know they're also very vulnerable. So in a way, one of the things we'd probably be most interested in doing is trying to protect or or well, especially not mow down forests in the tropics because the tropics are probably less vulnerable to forest fires and uh, you know but they're still vulnerable to decay. Um, but another part of the natural carbon capture that most people don't think about is this enhanced silicate weathering. And it's something that, you know, you're not used to because, of course, we're used to seeing trees growing up around us. And you're not used to seeing rock suddenly be transformed from one thing to another. Uh, but that's really what the Earth does anyway. And that's where most of the carbon on the planet is stored. I mean, four billion years ago, we probably looked a lot like Venus. And Venus has an atmosphere that's 90 atmospheres of CO2. And we probably had something pretty close to that, about 60 atmospheres. And all of that carbon has now been sucked out, basically scrubbed out by rocks, not actually by, I mean, there was no life at the time to do that. So it's mostly scrubbed out by minerals and it exists uh, in um, carbonate. So limestone, chalk, you know, the type of thing that I write with on my chalkboard, uh, marble and travertine and things like this that make good, you know, countertops and floors. Uh, so most of the carbon on the planet is stored that way. In fact, 99.99% of the carbon is stored that way. And only a tiny fraction is really stored in things like the whole biosphere or even fossil fuels for that matter. And an even smaller fraction 
in the atmosphere. And a, but another big um, reservoir of it is the oceans. Mm. Uh, it's not nearly as much as what's being held in minerals and rocks, but it's still a lot. Uh, it's much bigger than the whole biosphere and the fossil fuel uh, reservoir combined. I don't know. I'm getting off. <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing good. And that's an okay. amazing number that you put out there about the difference between uh, what, what's stored in minerals versus the biosphere. That's incredible. So uh, I think the, the word we want to zero in on right now uh, in, in your area of expertise is the word enhanced, uh, sure. which is the suggestion that you could make this happen maybe a little bit more than it occurs naturally. So how yeah. do we do that? Yeah, well, okay, the natural form that happens is, you know, it's reasonably slow, but it's always steady. And uh, what happens is that rain uh, dissolves CO2 naturally, and it winds up making an acid or car carbonic acid. I mean, carbonic acid is the same stuff you're drinking when you're drinking Coke or 7-Up or soda water. Um, and that's why we like to drink it. It's that little acid and helps us di digest stuff uh, like hamburgers, okay? Um, so that acid winds up reacting with natural minerals, I mean, silicates, and that's why we call about enhanced silicate weathering. And uh, that carbonic acid in the end, I mean, through a few different processes, winds up uh, converting that into carbonates like limestone, um, calcite, and things like that. I mean, calcite is one of the main minerals that makes up things like limestone and dolomites and aragonites and stuff like this. Um, so, uh, and it winds up washing it into the rivers, into lakes, into the oceans, um, and that happens naturally. Now, the way to enhance it, there are various options for doing this. One is uh, you could perhaps just react it with minerals that are very fast reactors, but they don't happen in huge abundance the way, for example, lava rocks do. Now, lava rocks, like the type of stuff you think of in Hawaii, uh, you know, spewing all over the place and making these beautiful pahoehoe flows, and uh, they react pretty fast, and that's probably the most abundant rock on the surface of the planet. There is no limit to those. Um, the, uh, but then there are rocks that come right out of the mantle that haven't melted and they react super fast. And so there are colleagues of mine like Columbia, Peter Kalman, who is a you know, world expert in this, has been promoting the idea of trying to get things like they're called uh, peridotites to react quickly. But another way, and one that we're looking at is grinding up rocks. I mean, grinding up these minerals like basalt. Uh, that is basalt is uh, lava that you think of in Hawaii. And by making them very small grain sizes, they react much more quickly. Now, it used to be thought 10 years ago, well, that's crazy because there's a lot of energy involved with actually grinding this up. But now that we're at this sort of critical moment where we actually have to really consider negative emissions, you know, this is something that was recommended after the 2015 Paris Accord and IPCC studies that showed we're just not going to do this without negative emissions. And that's what we're doing, of course. Um, so grinding up these minerals now is, is cost effective for what it is that we need to do. And there are various ways that you can distribute them. Um, one really attractive way is to put them into, into agricultural settings and to sprinkle them into crops. Farmers do this anyway, by liming their fields, they try to reduce the acidity of the soil, but you can do this instead with this sort of ground up basalt. And the soils have a high concentration of CO2 in them because microbes are basically digesting sugars and putting out CO2, so through restoration, and that CO2 in the soil is a high enough concentration that it reacts with those minerals to make uh, these carbonates. Um, and so that's something that's been studied. People have been doing field trials of this, and we're actually looking to do more field trials of this in the, in the U.S. in different environments. Um, and that's a very attractive thing because it releases nutrients for the soil. It sucks up carbon. Um, and then another co-benefit, which we're actually 
almost looking to go directly to is doing it, it eventually goes flows into the ocean, but we're even looking at trying to find ways to deposit this directly into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you can reduce the acidity of the ocean. I mean, we all worry about the oceans becoming highly uh, acidic and harming coral reefs and any other shell producing organism um, because of climate change. I mean, when we think about, you know, stuff that we're spewing into the atmosphere and you think, oh, the atmosphere has got 400 and something, 450 parts per million. That's that's accounting for the fact that the ocean is sucking up a lot of that CO2 mm-hmm. and absorbing it. But if we can help the ocean by adding some of these minerals, which reduces the acidity of it, we can get the ocean to absorb it even faster. Those minerals will eventually react with the acid to eventually create, you know, well, they'll in a way promote more shell production. And um, well, this is going to be very good news for the guest who's going to follow you, who's going to be yeah. talking about oysters and, and the specific oh, role that they play. So uh, the oysters are going to be very happy to hear what you're talking about. But Absolutely. before we before we run out of time, I do want to talk sure. about direct air capture, just the way that we are getting more and more accustomed to seeing wind farms uh, on the horizon. We might start to be starting to get a, we might eventually get accustomed to seeing a different kind of structure, uh, a structure that is actually uh, pulling uh, air in, as I understand it, in some ways replicating what submarines and spacecrafts do, right? Basically scrubbing CO2 uh, out of the air. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about so-called DAC, direct air capture. Yeah. I mean, this is a technology that's been around for a while. Um, You know, it uses in a way sort of a lot of the same technology that are used for scrubbing CO2 out of power plants that, uh, you know, you take the effluent from a power plant, you know, CO2 exhaust basically, and you react it with these chemicals. Uh, that are doused on these sort of veins and they, um, they're called amines and they scrub out the CO2. And a way that was sort of the technology that's been going on for a while is have these big, you know, I mean, the original ideas would have something almost like windmills, but in and out, we were looking at things, uh, you know, Klaus Lochner from, from ASU has been the pioneer of this for whoa, 20 years or so. And looking at things called silicon trees that they hope to plant everywhere to scrub CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. Hmm. It's a it's a tough thing to do because the atmosphere's concentration, although we worry about it, it's a strong greenhouse gas. It's not that high. I mean, it's not that high that it easily reacts with things. So in a way, what we're trying to do, I don't want to sort of pivot back to what we're trying to do, but I am, um, is that uh, the natural form of carbon capture using forests and oceans and minerals yeah, I mean, anyway, we're trying to get the Earth to do what it does anyway, just faster, without trying to do anything super extraordinary by adding, you know, another load. Well, even if you're capturing carbon with things like silicon trees and amines, you still have to store it somewhere. And mm-hmm. so that becomes the other problem with where do you shove it? And in a way, what we're trying to do is do both of them in one shot. I mean, in other words, capture and store it naturally in the same process. Um so that's sort of the difference between sort of direct air capture and the natural carbon capture that we're chasing. Right. We're going to eventually have sort of the CO2 equivalent of spent nuclear fuel rods that we'll have to uh, yeah, store that's, somewhere. That's um, exactly right. So, the, <laughs> so yeah, just to be, so just so people kind of understand this, though, there are companies that are already doing this. There are facilities that are already being structured. There's one uh, called Carbon Engineering. That, that's a company. Uh, they're from British Columbia. They mm-hmm. say, anyway, that they're going to be making facilities powered by renewable energy that will eventually re- each remove on net about a million metric tons of carbon uh, dioxide a year from the mm-hmm. Atmosphere, which is impressive until you realize that 31 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide were released into the atmosphere last year, right? Absolutely. But but you have to, you know, there is uh, no single solution to this and everything has to be tried. Everything's on the table. And also, I, 
think it's really important to emphasize for your listeners that this is not the panacea to solve all things. No. It doesn't mean that you have to somehow forget about reducing emissions. Right. Um, this is this is not a you know not the last resort. But ten years ago, you would have thought of it that way. But you have to reduce emissions in addition to looking at capture. Um, and hopefully, we don't get to the point of having to do solar geoengineering. Yes. Um, well, but yeah, let's hope that that doesn't happen, and we'll talk about it another day if it does. Uh, but David Bergovici, a co-director of the Yale Center for Natural Carbon Capture and a professor in Yale's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to shift gears here. I told you we were going to release the Kraken. No, not the Kraken. We're releasing the oysters, uh, actually, uh, because the oysters are are – Consider the oysters. They are here to help us. Uh, and uh, here to explain that is uh, Danielle Bassett, uh, Director of Restoration for the Billion Oyster Project. Hi. Welcome to our conversation. Hi. Thank you for having me. So we should make it clear that, you know, we just had a conversation about getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That's not what oysters do, although oysters do filter water very admirably. But what we want to focus on here is how the oysters can help us with some trouble we've already created for ourselves. <laughs> and that has to do with uh, the, the kind of flooding that we're having, these large waves that accompany the kinds of storms that we didn't used to have with such intensity and frequency. Uh, and so tell us what the oysters have to do with that. Yeah, um, so the oyster reefs are very similar to coral reefs. Um, so they basically create this obstacle in the, you know, the path of a wave that's coming into the shoreline. And um, so as oyster reefs mature and they grow and more oysters grow on top of them, um, they form this barrier that can help reduce that incoming wave energy and which we can see in storm surges and just the actually like the day-to-day currents that we have that also, um, you know, have big erosion issues um, for vulnerable shorelines. Um, And so as these oyster reefs are placed um, along these vulnerable shorelines um, that are, you know, either have wetland retreat or some type of vulnerable infrastructure, whether it be, you know, uh, power plants or wastewater treatment facilities or neighborhoods, um, you know, these uh, oyster reefs can reduce that incoming wave energy and break it up so that when the waves do actually hit the shoreline, they do less damage. So it is one tool in our toolbox to address um, you know, this, you know, issue that's coming out of more exacerbated from climate change. Right. And what we're also doing, uh, if we can get these oysters back where they used to be, is essentially that. Restore something that was there before. I mean, New York Harbor, I just watched a little while ago the documentary series High on the Hog, and there's a whole section about uh, oysters in New York and the whole history of that. But there used to be, as I understand it, a lot more oysters uh, <laughs> around to protect New York. Yes, exactly. Um, Before Europeans colonized this area, um, you know, there were probably trillions of oysters, um, 200,000 acres of oyster reefs throughout New York Harbor. Um, New York Harbor was very different, too, than what it looks like today. It's, you know, a major port today. Um, You know, the regulatory agencies dredge um, to make room for these massive cargo ships coming in and out. Um, And so it's a very different environment today and different ecosystem today. Um, So we can't fully restore. um, Sorry, there's a helicopter going over my head. Um, We can't fully restore um, what was once here, but we can at least restore the function that uh, oyster reefs provide, which is what you said earlier. You know, they do filter water as individuals. They can, as an adult, filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. 
Um, as a collective, you know, uh, reef, they can, you know, help reduce storm surge and that daily erosion issue. And um, also as a reef, they can provide, you know, essential habitat to uh, many other marine uh, species that depend on them. Um, and because they were so um, prominent, you know, back in the 1600s and before that, they made up the, they were basically coined, you know, the, the keystone species of um, the New York Harbor marine environment because there were just so many of them and they provided this habitat that they created themselves. So they're typically referred to as ecosystem engineers. So we're um, gonna, so that habitat yeah. is essential. Yeah. So we're going to do a little bit of engineering for them. I say we. I don't mean yes. me. Uh, <laughs> but there is something called through the governor's office of storm recovery. You see these storms like Irene and Sandy, and they get people's attention. Finally, uh, they are implementing a coastal green infrastructure through something called the Living Breakwaters Project. So so explain what this is. This kind of mimics uh, the kind of reef system that probably did exist in the time you're talking about. Yeah, so the Living Breakwaters Project is not just the typical breakwaters um, like that, like has been seen around the world. Um, it's a bit more uh, natural. Um, and so what we're actually, uh, we're one component of that project. We're actually putting oysters on and around um, the Living Break. There's about nine, uh, sorry, eight breakwaters, and we're going to add oysters to them. They're made of, um, you know, rocks and massive boulders, um, and so they are um, strategically placed based on modeling um, and wave energy uh, to protect that southern shoreline of Staten Island that's exposed to the bite of the Atlantic Ocean. All right. So, I mean, it's a small thing, but it's an important thing. And it may also yeah. be a model for what other places can do. And it uses a living creature instead of artificial materials that further deplete um, uh, our resources. So it all sounds uh, extremely appealing. Daniel Bissett, a director of restoration for the Billion Oyster Project. You can go online. You can find out more about the Billion Oyster Project and possibly even decide that you need to support it. And thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. We've got one more thing that we want to talk about. We want to talk about the idea of grant granting legal personhood to bodies of water uh, and what that would mean. We'll do that on the other side of this. All right, so it's time to say some thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer of this show every day, except the other day when she wasn't, but basically every day. And she always does a great job uh, and inspires confidence in me. So um, uh, thanks to her. Lily Tyson, uh, WizKid producer, is the producer of this episode uh, and has done a marvelous job as usual, except that she did pick out that Smash Mouth song. And, but, you know, young people, they make mistakes. They make mistakes, and they learn from those mistakes. I think that's the important thing here. Not that we played Smash Mouth, but that we're going to learn from playing Smash Mouth. All right. We're going to move on here. Uh, we are uh, – if you're just kind of tuning in here, we're talking about – I mean, look, when, when that climate report came out, when the latest IPCC report came out, I think anybody paying any attention and just absorbing it was kind of 
you know, just just encircled in a kind of darkness. I mean, the, the vision sketched out there uh, is terrifying, uh, and uh, a lot of it is now inevitable. Uh, but that's not a good place to stay, ultimately. Ultimately, we want to be able to say, what can we be doing? Uh, if we all did one little thing, it probably wouldn't make that big a difference. But if we all did 10 little things and then collected together and did hundreds of other things uh, and, and began to create a different set of attitudes, some of it is our minds. Our minds have to be transformed. They have to be changed. We have to think differently about the world that we live in. And that's where this next guest comes in and the next conversation comes in. Uh, Kelsey Leonard is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo, a Canada Research Chair in, in in Indigenous Waters, Climate and Sustainability, and a, a, a citizen of the Shinnecock Nation. Uh, she joins us now to talk about why lakes and rivers should have the same rights as humans. Hi, welcome to our show. Hey, hello. It's great to be with you today. So um, walk us through the argument here. Uh, by the way, we should say that if uh, you feel as though we didn't cover everything about this, uh, there is a Kelsey Leonard TED Talk, which you may uh, also w- want to watch as well. But b- walk us through the basic premise here. Yes. Well, really right now we're seeing an emerging area of the law, uh, and it's known as Earth law. It's sometimes referred to as well as ecocentric law. And this emerging body of law is geared towards protecting, restoring, and stabilizing the functional interdependency of Earth's life and its life support system. So when we think about our current and really pressing climate crisis and what some of your other guests have shared with listeners today, we not only need to adapt our scientific innovations to address these climatic changes, but we also need to uh, adapt and address our legal systems to address these climatic changes. And that's where Earth Law comes in. So within Earth Law, there is this concept that I think collectively is often referred to as environmental personhood. Uh, what is meant by that? Yes. So under, if we think of Earth Law as, as a tree uh, and a canopy of a tree, there are different types of legal mechanisms that can be deployed to advance or enforce Earth law. Some of those mechanisms include rights of nature or also within that, the recognition of legal personality of a natural entity. But it also encompasses rights and and laws around ecocide, animal rights, rights of future generations, as we've seen in the uh, Juliana case where young uh, American youth were fighting for uh, their rights to a, a future Uh, existence on our planet in light of climate change. And it also encompasses indigenous law, human environmental rights, uh, things around atmospheric trust litigation, as well as the guardianship of nature. So I think what's really important for listeners to realize when we think about earth law, when we think about environmental personhood, is it's actually much more expansive than just a grant of legal personality to a natural entity. Rather, it's really as human beings and as a society, recognizing that nature already has inherent rights to exist on, you know, on this planet. And in many ways, it had those rights before we came into existence, if we think sort of about evolutionary history. So that's, that, that's, a, that's a little bit for folks to think about in terms of Earth law, is it's much more all-encompassing than just recognition of the personality of a natural entity, although that is a good 
and needed legal mechanism for a step forward. Yeah, but let's talk some more about that legal mechanism. We should say that one of the entities that's been most involved in this is something called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDF. Yeah. Uh, and, and what they do in some situations is, in fact, uh, to uh, pursue on behalf uh, of of a lake or a river, uh, whether it's Lake Erie or or some major river, uh, uh, to, to sue on their behalf, essentially uh, to assert the personhood, just the same way that corporations and Citizens United, you know, asserted their personhood, assert the personhood uh, of this body of water, and then I think essentially as guardian, seeking legal standing as guardian of that entity, file a litigation. Maybe you can say more and say it more coherently than I just did. Well, that was actually a really, really, really great synopsis of, of what is going on and what's sort of the emerging area of this law and what it looks like in practice. Um, but there are a few organizations out there that are working to create really what we need is a new generation of, of earth lawyers and lawyers who are uh, fighting for the best interests of, of the planet and, and rights of nature. And so CELDIF, the Community Environmental Defense League Fund that you mentioned earlier, uh, are great advocates in this space and put also help to advance the uh, Lake Erie Bill of Rights that came out of the city of Toledo. But there's also um, the Earth Law Center, which also works in this space and has been um, working with tribal nations as well as communities across the United States and globally, also in, in, in Latin America and Oceania, to, to put forward these different types of, of legal mechanisms. And then there's also the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, GARN. Um, and even the UN has uh, been working in this space through the UN Harmony with Nature Project. So it is a very international uh, emerging area of law. And but as you said, let's, let's take it a step down. What does this actually look like in practice? Well, in practice, it's creating mechanisms, mechanisms, frameworks, policies, legislation, legal initiatives where we can actually give nature a voice. Sometimes that's through guardianship bodies. Sometimes it's through different forms of political representation. But it's really saying in sort of opposition to our current status quo that rights of nature should be considered in all decision making. And so we see the recognition of the rights of a river. We see the recognition of rights of mountains. We see the recognition of uh, particular natural um, entities like uh, the White Earth Ojibwe Nation recognize the rights of Monoman, which is wild rights. And so there are some really interesting ways in which this is being advanced locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. Yeah, I mean, internationally, we should say something about this, too, that it's uh, been a, a pretty interesting phenomenon in New Zealand, Ecuador, Colombia, Bolivia. And, and in a lot of those places, just as in the United States and in a way that you just uh, alluded to, there's a way in which the natural rights, the, the personhood rights uh, of a major lake or a river seem or wild rice uh, seem to go hand in hand with some of the concerns of indigenous peoples. And this is true not only in the United States, but I mean, the Maori uh, in, in New Zealand have kind of linked themselves to this issue uh, of a river having uh, its own personhood and its own rights. Maybe you can say more. Yes. So this is a global movement. It includes uh, constitutional amendments. We're seeing that at nation state levels, but also uh, some of the green amendments that are going through many of the states across America right now, like New York has a, has a green amendment it's exploring. So it can go through constitutional amendments. It can happen in court decisions. It can happen through local ordinances. And then, as you mentioned, through indigenous law and indigenous governance mechanisms, whereby rights of nature or the inherent rights of a natural entity 
are, are recognized and codified within those indigenous legal systems. In the context of the Whanganui River, which you mentioned er earlier mm -hmm. in Aotearoa and New Zealand, uh, for the Maori uh, that were a part of the recognition of that status, um, it was actually a collaborative uh, opportunity between the Maori and uh, the government of, of New Zealand. And so it really es establishes and represents a, a best practice of a co-governance arrangement that is also grounded in Indigenous treaties. Right. I was going to say that that as governments begin to acknowledge um, uh, and redress um, problems related to in indigenous people, as those people acquire more traction uh, within the legal system, they have a, 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 maybe a chance to spread that traction over to some of these bodies of water, water and other natural assets. I, we forgot to mention in India, the Ganges and Yamuna rivers are, as I understand it now, considered legal per, uh, persons in, in the same kind of effort, right, to try to, to fight the pollution there. In a similar effort, yes. Um, unfortunately, it, it has been somewhat struck down by the courts in, in India, and so it's still uh, under consistent litigation. But what is notable is is the effort there, and, and it was an effort to actually recognize a longstanding societal practice um, based within the indigenous traditions within India that actually recognizes those rivers as living entities. But through processes of colonization and and, and other activities of usurpation, those ideologies had been removed from the decision-making process. So I often uh, caution folks that earth law and these mo this movement is an opportunity to democratize water governance, to ensure that the people in power making decisions about water and for water are actually those who are most impacted and so that we can actually ensure that there is equal distribution of benefits, not only for us as humans, but for the water itself. All right. We're going to have to stop there, Kelsey Leonard, but there are some things I would like to talk to you about in the future, even some things that have happened right around here where I'm sitting. Uh, but there will have to be conversations for another day. Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo, a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Waters, Climate and Sustainability, and a citizen of the Shinnecock Nation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Lily Tyson again. All is forgiven with a smash mouth. You know, I mean, you got to play smash mouth once in a while. And thanks for listening. I hope we give you a little bit of hope or something to cling to. You pick your own things and try to make them important. I'm good actually changing my dog's dog food. I'm, not, I'm, I'm serious. You shouldn't be feeding your dog beef and lamb. Make them eat turkey and chicken.